0: Hello, I'm Sam, and the increasingly hirsute man opposite me is Tim Fisher. This is the Classical Music Pod. In today's episode, we've got a proms polemic. Lessons on Brexit from Beethoven. And I speak to composer Erilyn
1: Wallen about her upcoming BBC Proms commission.
0: And it's Marla's birthday. Some really chunky news to chew on this week, kicking off with how the Proms has got their new TV programme and is also receiving flack from all sides.
1: A weekly BBC2 show called Proms Encore is going to be broadcast on Saturday evenings throughout the festival and it will be filmed in an outside studio described as a specially constructed outdoor bandstand a la Wimbledon or Brexit on Palace Green. <laughs> They've also announced a few new presenters, so Jess Gilliam, Kana Mason, Keris Matthews, Clara Ampho, uh, Kwame Ryan are going to join the old hands Petruch, surely Katie Derem, Caesar Klein and Tom Service.
0: Nice. Now, Norman Lebrecht has been a bit critical of this. Norman is a long-standing classical music journalist, and he has said, it's unfair promotion, a potential conflict of interests under double act not many can sustain as in a uh, double act of performing and presenting, mm. he likens it to making love and watching themselves at the same time, which uh, is perhaps the worst analogy. That's terrible, and, uh, but he makes an interesting point. that the, Well, the, <laughs> that it is quite hard to be properly critical uh, if you are then going to go and work with these people in the future. If Jess Gillam has got a gig with the Manchester Camerata next week, and this week she's saying that they're rubbish, it's going to be quite awkward. So is she going to be as open and as frank as she might be?
1: Also giving the Proms a right old bashing is The Guardian in an editorial on Friday. They said the Proms has joined Ascot, Wimbledon and Glyndebourne as a magnet for conspicuous consumption and they went on to substantiate this claim with a quote from music history's great turd Theodore Adorno.
0: (laughs) To be fair that is a title we've given him. That is, yeah. If you're trying to support your argument with reference to Adorno you are clutching at straws, I think, uh, in the modern age. Tim, I know that you've got seven reasons why you think this article is rubbish. I
1: do. First of all, why would you pick on the Proms for its lack of accessibility when they ran an entire G2 supplement on Glastonbury which is 248 pounds plus 5 pound booking fee for
0: entrance? So you could go to the Proms for the basically the booking fee for Glastonbury.
1: Exactly, 6 pounds any night. Second of all, don't conflate the last night of the Proms with the festival entire as they have with that misleading photo of the flags waving in that article. Mm. They've lamented boring program this year but Actually, if you look at the programme and you see the percentages of living composers included and the risk that they've taken, you'll see that it's not nearly as safe as some people might suggest.
0: Moving in the right direction.
1: Next, the main thrust of the article seems to be that classical music has developed two grim social functions, this being status and subduing targeted undesirables classical music's always been a status symbol since the dawn of opera. People have gone to the opera, sat in their boxes and gossiped and not actually watched the music. <laughs> this is a classic trope that some people like to wheel out over and over again, but it's far more interesting to focus on the important work that other orchestras are doing. The West Eastern Divan Orchestra, the Refugee Orchestra, Street Orchestra Live, the New Note Ever- Orchestra. Every year, Promenades musical charities raise huge amounts of money during the concerts as well. Furthermore, I I bet there are plenty of McDonald's staff who are pleased that the subduing targeted undesirables has led to people calming down and stopping fighting in their shop whilst they're trying to sell them chips at four in the morning. (laughs) The article concludes by saying that classical music has become audible spa treatment. This is not the fault of institutions like the Proms or indeed anybody performing classical music live. This is the fault of adaptation to streaming platforms that classical music has not managed to catch up with yet and the way that our listening habits are changing due to playlists. Finally, I'd like to draw attention to the backlash that an article like this is going to have on people within the industry that are actually trying to change it for the better. Mm. The Proms being one of the institutions that is actually leading the charge. What worries me is that people who might have gone to the proms, will now have been put off by reading this editorial and will, as a consequence, be put off from listening to classical music for the rest of their lives.
0: In conclusion, don't piss off Tim Fisher. Speaking of angry people, Extinction Rebellion hosted a procession through central London, ending with a staged die-in at the Royal Opera House. The action is in protest to the Royal Opera House's decision to accept BP as a sponsor of its outdoor screenings. This is the second time the group has staged a protest at an opera event following action on the 11th of June at a screening of Romeo and Juliet.
1: Now this is another interesting discussion.
0: A bit chewy. Another chewy one.
1: So, okay, so let me add this caveat. I am... (laughs) I'm not in favour of companies like BP doing what they are doing, okay? But, but, this is not the problem here. I think the real issue is that there is a perceived dichotomy between... I'm such a nagger, aren't I? A perceived <laughs> dichotomy between the evil patron and the worthy arts. There is plenty of acclaimed art that has had a questionable influence You've got anti-Semitism in Wagner's Ring, there's blatant racism in films like Gone with the Wind, The Painter's Male Gaze, Violence Glorified in any number of cult cinema classics, Mm. and plenty of artists themselves have had equally questionable attitudes. Conversely, BP... Granted, they're nasty people, but they do regularly give to worthy causes. I'm doing inverted commas. They've put millions of investment into UK education, millions into social projects in all the countries where they drill. They're building the UK's largest rapid charging hub for electric vehicles. And, it, and another interesting stat is in 2016, FTSE 100 companies donated £1.9 billion to charity. So this idea of the evil patron the worthy artist, it's not as simple as that. It doesn't split down the middle. Hmm.
0: But maybe there's a sense that the arts, if they're going to take that money, should be putting further pressure on those companies to behave well. Because the reason they've behaved well in all those instances that you've just listed is probably by and large because governments have said, if you're going to drill here, you're going to build us schools. If you're going to do this, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to do that. So if the Royal Opera House is going to give you their badge of approval then we need you to do X, Y, or Z. And maybe we should be supporting Extinction Rebellion's efforts to make sure that Royal Opera House are being held to account in their holding BP to account. But how picky can you be
1: when government austerity has cut annual arts funding by 100 million a year
0: for the past decade? Not a clear-cut answer, but it's probably about balancing those pressures Mm. of what we expect from artists in terms of being morally pure, what we expect from patrons in terms of making sure they fulfil obligations to us as well.
1: Give me all in my lamp, keep
0: me I agree with Nick.
1: Give me all in my lamp, I pray I agree with Gordon Give me all in my lamp, keep me burning I
0: agree with every single word. Give me burning till the break of day You must have a consensus. La Scala continues to test audiences' patience for directors who have questionable relationships with women and children by committing Woody Allen to staging Gianni Scicci in the coming season with artistic director Alexander Pereira.
1: And finally, media research has found that the genre relaxing piano music is the sixth most preferred genre of surveyed listeners in their new report commissioned by... Streaming platform, Adagio.
0: So this is across all different streaming platforms. Yeah. Relaxing piano music is right up there with sort of driving guitar rock. Or yeah,
1: something. yeah, yeah. And prog rock. Amazing. Well, is it amazing?
0: I'm a be- I bet you're about to tell me that it isn't, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it.
1: No. I think that this Research highlights a real problem. It's something that we touched on at uh, speaking about the proms a minute ago. Relaxing piano music is a mood, not a genre. Uh, so it feels like classical music has uh, something that has competing styles and sounds, is become a sonic type. It sort of acts as a countermeasure to the chaos of millennial modernity.
0: Yeah, it's music to do things to, isn't and, it? Exactly. Which is... Uh, I want to talk a bit more about in the CD review, but jazz had that same thing with the first sort of thirty years of its history, where it was danced to or was entertainment music, and then finally got to own its own artistic space in the sort of forties and fifties. It um, feels like
1: the same thing is happening in reverse with classical music, doesn't it? And I, I have a, th- I know why. <laughs> God damn it! Tell me. This is the problem with metadata. So classical music is listened to in a different way to pop you've got loads of recordings of the same work by different artists. Streaming platforms don't provide the right filters and tags to find the various recordings, so therefore CDs are still by far the preferred way of listening. So to have another shot at The Guardian, when they reported (laughs) that uh, classical music is becoming more and more popular amongst millennials, it might actually be that millennials just want to relax and are using classical music to do that.
0: Yeah, and if you're using music to do something is it still art music? I mean, it sounds a lot like there isn't quite such a big market for this podcast as we originally thought. (laughs) (laughs) Drop
1: it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it.
0: Despite dying in 1827, Ludwig van Beethoven was in the news this week. Famously rude and unable to listen to the voices of others The Brexit Party turned their backs on Beethoven's Ode to Joy The Anthem of Europe At the opening of the new session of European Parliament in Strasbourg
1: It was being played on a saxophone quartet, wasn't it?
0: Yes, usually for symphony orchestra, vocal soloists and chorus It was being played by four saxes and it sounded rather nice turn you back on that. Well, exactly. This week, I thought I'd pick apart why it's such a hit, why it continued to influence composers for generations, and perhaps explain why Brexiteers ignoring it is so apt. But I'm going to start by telling you about the 2001 precursor to Love Island. Mr. Wright was ITV's Saturday night hot ticket back in the early noughties. Presented by famous Swede and weather girl Ulrika Johnson, a beautiful man called Lance Gerard Wright, literally Mr. Wright, was The Bachelor, and 15 handsome women competed for his hand.
1: And this is like the beginning of Beethoven 9's fourth movement, how?
0: Well, before the Ode to Joy theme emerges, or the melodic themes from the first three movements of the symphony, are introduced and then in turn each is rejected, like each one of those poor contestants being sent home each week. It takes a few minutes in the symphony, but the beginning of that process sounds like this. The twist for ITV audiences was that much like the finale to Beethoven 9, Gerard Wright broke the format. Rather than selecting one of the contestants, at the end of the series, Mr Wright slunk off with the programme's host Ulrika Johnson, separately notable for being Sven-Goran Eriksson's girlfriend. Mr Wright saw the rules of the game and broke them, just like Beethoven did. Rather than pick one of the competing, existing themes from the symphony, the composer reinvents the parameters, and suddenly, an hour into an orchestral symphony, he introduces vocal soloists and a chorus to sing this new unifying theme. My friends, not these tones. The symphonic parameters are shown to be insufficient. We need something greater. This destruction of the format created a real issue for the symphonists who came next. Beethoven had completed the game. A fellow called Harold Bloom wrote a book called The Anxiety of Influence that basically proposed that poets who want to create original work are jeopardised by their relationship with the work of previous poets. Writing the next ITV dating show after Mr. Wright must have been really hard after that format had been blown apart. Maybe think of how the American office was so much better once it got away from retelling the same stories as the British office. Well, Beethoven's influence was pretty potent stuff, and the next generation of composers were pretty anxious as a result. You can't imitate him, and yet you can't ignore him. Berlioz wrote Harold in Italy, which I talked about as being an anti-Beethoven symphony in episode 5. Brahms, possibly my favourite symphonist of them all, spent at least 14 years writing his first symphony. And it still sounded like this.
1: So basically a Beethoven tribute
0: act. Quite a lot like that. The Ninth was just such a game changer that composers had to confront it and even now each generation has to come to terms with it, work out what it means to them. That might be as the soundtrack to the film Die Hard or as a way to celebrate Hitler's birthday or perhaps it was the emblem of a new Europe being performed by Bernstein as the Berlin Wall came down. Even the saxophone quartet is this generation's reinvention. The symphony was an elephant in the room. Speaking of which, let's think about Brexit for a moment. And let's think about Daniel Stiebold whilst we do. Who is Stiebold? Poor Mr. Stiebold wanted to knock Beethoven off his perch. He came to Vienna, touted as the next big thing in 19th century piano playing, composing, and crucially at the time, improvising.
1: Improvising? Yes,
0: they would hold competitions, with performers improvising variations on a given theme. The reigning champ in Vienna was our man Ludwig. And Stiebold came to upset the order. He came to change the narrative, came to argue that he, not Beethoven, should be considered the greatest composer in the greatest musical city of the time. At the contest, Stiebold played several of his own compositions, improvised and tried to put forward his case for supremacy. It didn't seem to work, and he knew it more than anyone else. He got so comprehensively whooped by Beethoven, improvising on one of Stiebalt's own themes that he left Vienna before Beethoven had even finished playing, and Stiebolt vowed never to return.
1: Stiebexit?
0: Well, maybe. Our Brexiteer pals... St- Brexiteer, our Brexiteer pals haven't even done as well as Mr Stiebolt, because they've not interacted. They literally haven't gone toe-to-toe.
1: They haven't faced the music.
0: And this, for me, is the problem with turning your back on the Ninth. It is to ignore history. Whatever history that may be, each generation has to wrestle with its anxieties, overcome them and come to terms with it. And their creative reaction is a reasoned response, rejection or reification of that history. Turning their back is the opposite. They do not interact with the canon of argument, do not put forward their case to change history. They do not reason their arguments into a manifesto or justify that great tautology that Brexit means Brexit. If they're gonna advocate leaving, They should come and face Europe, face Beethoven, and be a bit more like Daniel Stiebold. Here, in the wild, we have recordings we have made of John Burko praising the power of classical music and the Parliamentary String Quartet, the Statutory Instruments.
1: It is, I think, a tribute to the quality
0: of these statutory instruments (laughs) on the one hand and to your love of exquisite music on the other that Speaker's House has been effortlessly filled this lunchtime. What a magnificent demonstration of music and although you have shown your appreciation of the playing of Mozart and of of Debussy, I don't think we can say thank you, congratulations or wow, wasn't that magnificent too often and so in appreciation of Thangam, of Catherine, of Cathy and of Emily, please put your hands together again. Tim, we had a double date. Not a double date. We just had a date. We did have a double date. Who are the other two? It was a double date, in fact, they were because there were two concerts. Yeah. We went to Speaker's House first, but then in the evening went up to uh, the South Bank Centre, the Queen Elizabeth Hall. We
1: went to the Queen Elizabeth Hall and um, watched Andrew Gauley conduct the Royal College of Music Symphony Orchestra. They played... Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, which some of you may remember from *Shine*, starring Jeffrey Rush, uh, and *The Planets*. So, a fairly classic repertoire. Yeah. Played by a really young band of students, essentially. So the Rachmaninoff, the piano soloist was Victor Maslov. Great name. Great name. He is a native Russian, but mm-hmm. he's studying here in in the UK at the moment. So, a sort of heavy-breathed display of <laughs> Russian firepower from Mr. Maslov. As I said, he's currently studying at the RCM with Dmitry Alexei. Apparently, he was taught by his mum beforehand at the Gnesin Moscow Special School of Music. I was taught the piano by my mum. Yeah. There it- Didn't turn out quite the same. No, it didn't, did it? And he gave his concerto debut at the age of nine (laughs) with the State Symphony Orchestra of of Moscow. Incredibly impressive. So I I thought he was immensely proud. Yeah, what came across, he he felt really proud of this piece of Russian culture that he was presenting Mm. to, he was flaunting to a UK audience. And that really came across. Technically, his playing was nigh on faultless. And... His heart was completely and utterly on his sleeve throughout. Funnily enough, I had never seen his work performed live, and I'd never appreciated how self-indulgent it is. My yeah. word! But which is something that I think when I was younger, I, that's what drew me to it. Right. And now, as I've got a bit older, not so much. <laughs> and it, it, this is a brutal criticism, but I wonder if Maslov had applied a bit more subtlety, it would have tempered this self-indulgence and perhaps made it more to my taste
0: yeah i thought the least convincing bits were where he was trying to be very powerful for an extended period of time
1: exactly the other criticism i would give is that at times the orchestra felt like they were relying a little too much on him to lift the occasion perhaps they were sitting back a little and letting him put on the show rather Mm. than following him every step of the way uh, at least until the final movement, that's what came across to me. Maslow, he came across very modest, almost embarrassed on <laughs> finishing. Uh, he played a wonderful encore. It made me like him even more, actually. Sam, you described him as coming across like a teenage shopping assistant at Marks and Spencers.
0: Yeah, he's sort of scurrying off to go and get you the other pair of suit trousers it, it or something. And then, it, oh, I suppose I would better do an encore then. Uh, yeah, exactly. Very meek.
1: Indeed. So we went on to the Planets. And it was a real pleasure to watch enormous young orchestra give definitely give their all to piece that is very deservedly an intrinsic part of the canon something mm. again. I had never seen this live I don't think really, so oh. it was really special for me. They looked giddy with excitement I, that's <laughs> what I thought, and a special mention to the tambourine player and the tympanists who for me perfectly exemplified this energy that the orchestra brought uh and i think that energy was more than enough to make up for some fairly sloppy mistakes that were made i have to say it's a student orchestra bear in mind so mm. there are a couple of dodgy horn entries there's a couple of trumpet scuffs and a flat flute and some and the, when the violins faded out to silence it was a bit crackly and it if, if you know what i mean it doesn't yeah. quite fade out uh homogeneously and there was a wrong entry on that celeste but as i say the, the it didn't matter because there was so much heart going into the performance mm. and I still felt deeply affected by it. This highlights something that we all seem to take for granted in the fact that The Planets is damn difficult. Yeah. And that's something I had. And there's loads of solos and loads of pressure on a lot of members of the orchestra. What's also worth mentioning is that most of these players are technically paying to play this concert via their tuition fees. They're not being paid to play in this concert. And that adds an interesting dimension to any gig. Some of the best gigs I've done have been the free ones, and I think that that comes across in how I present myself during those free gigs. I tend to invest in it more emotionally. It's almost like I'm saying to myself, perhaps rather cynically, well, I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm going to try extra hard to get something else out of it instead, Mm. and I sort of throw my heart on the table. And I think that, mixed with their excitement at this huge audience, probably the biggest audience a lot of them would have played too, I imagine yeah. is what made the players give such an enthusiastic performance
0: composer fact file Sergei Rachmaninoff
1: born 1873 Styruskia Starus-
0: Russia a piano prodigy he wrote his first piano concerto aged 18
1: the premiere of his first symphony was conducted by the composer Glazanov Many of the audience thought he was drunk.
0: Rachmaninoff resorted to hypnotherapy after experiencing writer's block. This led to the second Piano Concerto.
1: This was then used in the soundtrack to Brief Encounter.
0: His third Piano Concerto is used in the film Shine.
1: He married his cousin, Natalia. He
0: had famously massive hands, spanning 12 piano keys.
1: In December 1917, he fled the Russian Revolution in Petrograd for Helsinki on an open sled with his wife and daughters.
0: The Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians predicted
1: that The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded them with much favour. Sam, what have you been listening to this week on a CD?
0: <laughs> I've got a doubly dangerous typo issue here in the CD department this week. John Luther Adams is not short, Riding right, a fast John Adams, but a different one who has had to use his middle name because he became famous later. And his new CD is Become Desert, released on Cantaloupe Records. John Luther Adams is another living American minimalist who looks a bit like the love interest from a mature rom-com. He's quite handsome. He's quite handsome. I could totally see him and maybe like Julianne Moore falling in love in a wood cabin or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Crucially, uh, he's only got one track on his new CD and it's the 39 long minute piece, Become Desert, which I felt very self-conscious every time I've typed this week because I don't want to misspell it and make it become dessert because that misses the ecological emphasis of the piece.
1: What is the ecological emphasis?
0: Well, as well as playing and composing, Adams worked as an environmentalist in protection of the environment and the natural world surrounding him has found its way into his music. This is the third part of a nature based trilogy. The other two are Become River and his Pulitzer Prize winning, Become Ocean, that we saw at Barbican in sort of January ish. Mm-hmm. And they're both and indeed this piece is as well, a large-scale minimalist piece with a sort of constructional gambit at the core of their composition. Become Ocean is a 40-minute-long palindrome. Uh, And Become Desert is similarly an exercise in musical architecture. It's written for a large orchestra plus chorus, and performers are divided into five separate ensembles, intertwining in different slow-churning tempi, which sounds pretty cool on paper, but... Uh, my headline t- first takeaway from the CD is that I don't think you actually get to feel that spatial element from the CD, even if you've got a decent sound system rather than just a pair of big headphones. So, my big idea for this piece is that it should be recorded in VR. If you had it in VR, you could walk around and experience the piece in loads of different ways each time, even possibly taking on a sort of composer curator role of your own as an audience member and choosing your own pathway through this 40-minute work, if you're going to listen to it at home on the CD, you're not going to have the same concert hall experience.
1: OK, so that aside, what was the actual playing like?
0: I think generally it's very good. There are certainly different challenges for an orchestra taking this on. It's such a sustained, elongated style that, I mean, it's I can only imagine it's unfamiliar to most of the players. Conversely, the percussion have a lot to do, and it's very precise work as well. Anything being out of place would interrupt this huge sense of um, arc and calm that the piece has. It really reminds me of uh, what Harry Sever, a fan of the Pod, B, great composer conductor, describes as whale music. Uh, this sort of mm-hmm. ding, mm-hmm. and actually, if anything is out of place, if that ding is in the wrong place vertically, it's going to displace all the calm that we're and the sense of time that we're feeling horizontally the fading in and out of brass chords is done very elegantly i think and the strings concentration is incredibly impressive uh, but the kind of virtuosic challenges that might distinguish uh, an orchestra playing it from an amateur orchestra just aren't there you know unlike the planets we don't get to hear a little focus on individual instruments it's more if you were to hear an amateur orchestra play this just the lack of control over the whole shape would be the defining feature that I think you'd hear separating them. So it's really impressive playing, but it almost goes under the radar. Okay, and would you recommend people go out and buy it? Well, I really feel like people should go and try it for themselves. For me, it tests that boundary of what is art music, a lot of what we've been talking about today, and what is utilitarian, functional music. Is this meditative music, Mm. or is it music to meditate to? Uh, there are certainly times when it feels like I've wandered into that shop on Salisbury High Street that has the middle-aged white ladies selling dreamcatchers and incense and sort of baggy yeah, and trousers. And you've just got sort some... Of, is it just setting a, a calm atmosphere? Mm. Or is it actually the object of some focus? John Luther Adams gives a, a brilliant sense of landscape in his composition, I think. but And deliberately, I think. There is no individual journey through that landscape. If you think about how Sibelius, uh, or a composer like that, is able to create... That sense of an individual in the in the swirling tundra by having an oboe solo fighting against all these string patterns or something like that. Uh, Luther Adams has taken the oboe soloist out, and you've just got the string patterns. Mm. And I think that's exactly what he wants, but for me, it does occasionally teeter on the edge of whether it's actually interesting or exciting. And certainly, the amount of hype that a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer gets, I. It, Doesn't totally convince me. I would recommend trying it out for yourself if you haven't heard it before, because it could be exactly up your street, or you might have a similar reaction to me. (laughs) Timothy,
1: where have you been this week? I spoke to the composer, Errolin Wallen, composer and performer Errolin Wallen, uh, about her brand new BBC Proms commission, which is being performed next month at the Royal Albert Hall. She is the first black female composer to have a work performed at the BBC Proms. She's a fascinating character, and I caught up with her at the Wild Cat offices in Bloomsbury. interview, 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 interview,
2: interview. interview,
1: interview, interview. I'm here with Erilyn Wallen. Thank you very much for joining me and coming onto the Classical Music Pod. I think what I'd be really interested to talk about is your latest BBC Proms Commission, which is going to be premiered next month. Yes, August 15th it is. And it's called This Frame is Part of the Painting, and it's an orchestral homage to the painter Howard Hodgkin, who died in 2017. And so can you first of all explain the story behind the title?
2: yes it's very interesting, so in fact where we 're sitting is not that far from where howard 's house and studio really oh, just um,
1: we're in bloomsbury by yes the
2: way, yeah. yes, we're in Bloomsbury, and his house is just in um, right near the British Museum, mm. and the first time I ever visited there, it was quite exciting. I was looking around works that Howard Hodgkin was, was preparing for a show New York, so some works are still in progress there's a lot really brand new works that some of which had not been seen before. Mm. And I noticed that on the table there was like a stamp, and on the stamp it said, this frame is part of the painting. So I asked Andy Barker, who's Howard's assistant, what does that mean? And he was saying, you know, a big signature to Howard's Some of his work is the fact that he will paint, that the frame really is part of the painting, he will paint over that frame. And I think there were a couple of times where galleries, inadvisedly, were taking the frame away, thinking it was just... It just painting yeah. got splattered on it and it was to, had to be removed and reframed. So that's why on yeah. some of those paintings, at the back of it, it's stamped, this frame as part of the painting. Uh, and I remember thinking, that could be a great title. Little knowing that I would have, um, you know, be commissioned by the proms to write a work. Yeah. And so when I was commissioned, I was asked for ideas of pieces, actually, because it's actually indirectly, this commission is also tied in with Cardiff Sing of the World. And so whoever, the winner of that, In in this case, it's Katrina Morrison. Um, The work will feature her, mezzo-soprano, with the orchestra. And I I had a couple of ideas. The very first one was a homage to Howard Hodgkin and his work. uh, And the fact that I'd seen the most... And another one, another title I have is Sunrise Over Hopkins, based on a trip, I can't remember, several years ago, where... In Hopkins, which is in Belize, I'd witnessed the sunrise, which was one of the most incredible sunrises I've ever seen. So in a way, the work culminates with both the sunrise and the sunset. I- I'm remembering both things at the end mm. of that work.
1: Was Howard Colchin an important artist for you, an inspiration for you? And how, how has it fed into the work?
2: I'd say every note of this work is, is influenced by this painting. I- I've never actually written a work so directly influenced by, you know, specific works but before uh, you know when I was a very young composer I remember seeing a show of Howard Hodgkins I think it was the, at the Hayward Gallery and I was just blown sideways as many people were by the the emotional directness and the bravery of these works. People describe him as a colourist and it's true his colours are tremendous but it's not just that it's his just the whole sensibility that they're emotionally extremely clear the technique is always at the service of the expression and um, I remember also at quite a dark point when I was thinking can I really make a life as a composer it seems to be so impossible somehow and uh, Howard is on the television talking and he was just just about to cry when he was talking about that maybe it's possible to be an artist in this world well. and I thought wow if he can say that then I'm I must mm. try and I never knew I would ever meet him so it's it was a fantastic thing
1: when did you meet him was that a, a long time ago or
2: I met him in 20, it was 2015 and I actually m- m- went to his studio and I met him and I oh. said thank you very much for all your lovely works mm-hmm. and he was sitting listening to uh, a Bar- cello suite at the time oh, really? many of his titles are inspired by you know song titles and there's a section in this work of the proms where I I'm directly alluding to a painting called Portrait of the Artist Listening to Music. And um Andy Barker, Howard's assistant, said that he was listening to two things. The um the theme tune from The Third Man and The Last Time I Saw Paris. Mm-hmm. And both these have sneakily just hid little fragments of these motives yeah. into the work. This work, <laughs> even though it's on quite a quite large scale, is very it feels like a very personal work to me, which is a celebration both of the fantastic um Output of Howard Hodgkin, but also the journey of a work from beginning, when you don't know what you're doing, right till the to that moment when you're absolutely sure, and then to the end of you know to the completion, mm. and in a sense to the end of life.
1: You've got a few other exciting, well, quite a lot coming up this year. Actually, okay. you've got a crazy year. So you, mm-hmm. the first thing that I'd be interested to hear about is the, these two two operas, I believe. Yes. Um, could you tell me a little bit about them?
2: And... I, I always forget what I'm doing, and then occasionally I'll get an email saying, "Oh, like the other day. Oh, yes, is the bassoon concerto ready?" <laughs> yes. So the first first one coming up is the Powder Monkey, which we tried out last year. This is for commissioned by a company called Broly. and what's interesting about them, the writing and the visuals almost arrive before the music. So in this case. These digital drawings are projected as part of. They arrive together with the libretto, and so we had a meeting just fr- last Friday working out. And also, we'll have sound design, and it's a very, it's a novel way of working. But where yeah. the music, of course, is very important, but it's it's not the case as, as is often where you have the music and then the designer reacts to that and the director in terms of mm. I already know what stage I'm working towards
1: And so it's, it's going to be a, a real multi-sensory experience is that the, the visual's going to be up there on stage and...
2: definitely and it's a very um, this is touring so it can go to quite small audiences but it's we had to try out last year with just a segment of it and I was very uh, taken with this this way of working because it means you've got a truly portable opera but the, with really high production values but but the the drawings by R- Rachna are just absolutely
1: divine. Mm. Did, did you find that meant more sort of, I suppose, compromise in a way, working with people in, in a more collaborative approach? Did you enjoy that then? Or, or do you prefer to be in control of everything?
2: I mean, I would say my best music is when I'm left completely alone. But mm. in really the best collaborations, usually you can come up with something really exciting. I think what's good about this team we were very open we they're not prescriptive in any way and and we had a meeting and i'm suggesting things that may be work with the sound design you know i have a say in some of the images but it, it actually helps me to i can't put my finger on this mm. this one feels like a very good collaboration yeah. writing up for anyway can be you know has its tense moments but this part because we tried it out last year um, I know exactly, we all, we're all on the same page, we, we know the world we're creating and we're building on what we did last year mm. to make something I think that will be really quite special.
1: So in September you'll be performing your concerto Grosso with Refugee Orchestra. How did that collaboration come about and what does it, what does it mean to you to be performing with them? Yeah.
2: Um, Lydia Yankovskaya, who's the conductor, I'd met her a few years. In fact, she helped develop a couple of my operas in New York with the Centre of Contemporary Opera. And she was the repetitor for a couple of them, and we became good friends. Now she's Chicago, I think, lyric, lyric opera. But she contacted me and said, you know, I'd like you to be involved in this in this event, the Refugee Orchestra. It It means a lot, and Lydia particularly wanted this piece, Concerto Grosso, which I have played before. I'll be performing it in this one, and mm. Chichi will be playing. Yeah. I'm actually quite excited about that concert. The programme looks great. And before yeah. that, you know, I'm performing um, songs. I'm getting ready to do a concert now with my, my Ensemble X of, in Teta Teta concert of songs, mm. my more popular songs.
1: Yes, of course, you're the founder of of um, Ensemble X. Yes. Uh, how long ago was that that you, that you set them up now? That
2: was back in the day, the day <laughs> when...
1: When's the day? <laughs> the
2: day before global warming was such a threat.
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah.
2: We <laughs> that goes back to nineteen ninety. Can you believe it? Nineteen ninety. I'm pretty sure that was our first concert. Was it nineteen ninety <laughs> years ago. <gasps> but I've just been born. Yeah. So yeah, it was then. But our motto was we don't break down barriers of music, we don't see any. It started out as um a collection of musicians who I'd worked with, some I'd met through um, you know, pop so for instance there was a band uh, String Quartet worked a lot in pop sessions and included Jocelyn Pook, who now has very distinguished careers. Mm-hmm. And I just saw that there were all these musicians around that were so so multi-talented and had a really broad outlook on music making. Some people like Tim Harris, fantastic bassist, and Mike Henry, who's, who's actually now head of Music National Theatre, but incredible singing voice, incredible all musician. And it was just sort of friends together playing. Mm. But I would include my own songs and other my works. It just starts off as actually a bit of fun in a way. I, I have so many commissions now for other groups. I can't get this group together as often as I like. But yeah. I really would like to go back to doing more performing and you know singing and mm. playing because it's a thing I that's very important.
1: To do, you, me. do you think? the being on the stage and the performance is more important to you than they're very you
2: different things yeah. one but it wouldn't be possible for me to perform without all the the composition beforehand but mm. it's very liberating to perform i really love it. it's a different it taps into a different part yeah it's exciting you're directly communicating in the moment so it's quite scary and i think it's good for composers to be reminded of um what performing really is it's All these split second decisions and um, really going with the moment, it does definitely inform my own composing. So,
1: the the final thing I wanted to ask you is so, both you and Chi Chi and Hannah Kendall, and and more recently, I suppose, the Canna Mason siblings. I think it's fair to say that you've all, you are doing a lot of work for diversity within the classical music scene. Indeed, you were, I believe, the first black woman to have performed at the BBC Prom. To, to have, work, to have work performed at the BBC Proms. You were the first woman to receive the Ivan Novello Award. It feels mm. certain to me that artists such as yourself have begun to debunk this myth that classical music is for white, upper-middle-class people. Do you feel as though the goalposts have... Begun to move, or is there still a huge amount that needs to be done?
2: Well, I feel I was very lucky because I was able to have free uh, musical tuition, you know, at school. That's no longer possible, so I worry about the fact that, in some ways, it's still less, way less democratic in terms of musical provision mm. for kids. Young, know,
1: it's getting and worse which, in some yeah. ways.
2: Yeah. And so I think that we've moved things have moved in some ways, and that people will accept, you know, person of colours being composer mm. because. It has been a struggle for me sometimes. People just to refuse to think that I could be a composer, but then I think I worry about young people having access to what really is is quite uh, quite a demanding apprenticeship. It has to be that way. It, it takes a lot of hours. It takes money for lessons. It takes you know good instruments. A lot of travelling around. And I think that's where I'd like to see mm. things become yeah. more fair because that has become actually less fair. It has yeah, talent becomes from anywhere, everywhere, it's not, it yeah. doesn't respect, it's not about class or, you know, and it, but it's course, just yeah. be able those people be able to be able to nurture that talent, that's what's so
1: important. Mm. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast, Erin it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and very best of luck in August next month and of course with all of your projects coming up.
2: Oh, thank you, Timmy <laughs> lovely to speak with you. All
0: right
1: Continuing this summer is Gleinborn. Dvorak's Rosalka has opened. Garsington, The Turn of the Screw, which got very good reviews. Offenbach's Fantasio. That's being conducted by Harry Sever. Harry Sever. uh, Buxton Festival has just started up last week, I think. Tchaikovsky's, how do you say this, Sam? Eugene Onegin. That's it. And Georgiana. Also, Don Giovanni at Longborough and the Cheltenham Festival of Music started last
0: week. Quite a lot of kickoffs there. Wednesday the 10th, the item that you will see from the Cheltenham Music Festival is Danielle Denise giving a recital. It's also Carl Orff's birthday. Mm. Thursday the 11th, Philip Glass and Philip McDermott's Tower of
1: Glass is opening at the Royal Exchange Manchester as part of the Manchester International Festival. I spoke to Philip McDermott about two months ago before they'd started rehearsals. It sounds like a really interesting piece. If you want to read my interview with him, then there'll be a link in the
0: description. Interestingly, the Manchester Camerata aren't in Manchester with... Philip Glass, they're in Tewkesbury with Jess Gillam giving a concert. Uh, it's also the day that George Gershwin died in 1937, notable because he was the richest composer ever. Ever? Like, in, like, in, yeah, ever. Ever. There's a, there's a
1: story, that I'm not sure if it's true, but he went to Schoenberg to ask for lessons, and Schoenberg said, how much do you earn? He told him, and Schoenberg said, well, perhaps you should be the one giving me the lessons. Nice story. Maybe apocryphal.
0: Friday the 12th. The 16 are in Hull!
1: That's it. Anna Latwood is giving an organ recital at the Cheltenham College Chapel.
0: Hello, Anna. Saturday 13th, there's a morning workshop in St Mary's Battersea, which is cool because it is with the Platinum Consort out of Durham. Hey, Platinum Consort. And also they are celebrating a selection of choral music written by female composers, Hildegard von Biggen, Roxana Penufik and Cecilia McDowell, as well as the group's own member, Miranda Osler. Also on Saturday at St Albans Cathedral... Howard Blake's 80th birthday celebration concert,
1: with a special premiere of a new a cappella arrangement of, you've guessed it, Walking in the Air. It might be the only time you can hear Walking in the Air performed in sweltering heat. Mm. Also in Cheltenham, live human experiments. This is a sort of lecture come concert which is going to explore what goes on in the brain as a musician improvises with Vincent Walsh, who's the professor of human brain research at UCL. Uh, And he goes inside the mind of jazz supremo Guy Barker for an event that is both a conversation with two leaders in their fields as well as a live musical and neurological experiment.
0: Good voice work. It's also Finzi's birthday. He's born in 1901. Uh, He shares this with Gerald Ford, William Rees-Mogg, who I believe is uh, Jacob's father.
1: Ex-Editor of the Times. Yeah, And Gustav Klimt. Looking ahead a bit further... Uh, we've got Glyndebourne's Magic Flute opening on the 18th.
0: The Proms opens on the 19th with Joshua de Castries, BBC commission. Long is the journey, short is the memory. Uh, plus the Outchurch's Glagolithic Mass. The 29th, grimborn begins at Arcola. This is an uh, opera festival I'm really looking
1: forward to, not least because they have three works written by a woman composer, compared to the rest of the operatic festivals or the primary opera companies that are have featured works by approximately zero female composers. Mm. It's opening with the new chamber performance of Verdi's La Traviata. Also, you can catch Aaron Copeland's Song cycle of Twelve Poems by Emily Dickinson. Also, Samuel Barber's tiny opera, A Hand of Bridge, which I think would be mm. fascinating. Uh, there's a contemporary reimagining of Johann Strauss's De, de Mouse." Loads of really cool things coming up. And it's
0: only up at the Arcola as well, isn't it? So you Mm. can stay inside the M25 and have a very interesting, worthy time as an opera fan.
1: Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Before we go, we'd like to say a couple of quick thank yous. First of all, thank you to Erilyn Wallen for that wonderful chat that we had and to Naomi from Wildcat for sending that up for us.
0: Thank you to Cantaloupe Records for being very generous with the audio files from the John Luther Adams. And of course thank you to Tessa from Premiere for setting up the tickets for that Royal College of Music gig. We are going to go on a little bit of a summer break now. So whilst we won't be talking to you about classical music, you could be talking to your friends about classical music and one thing that might help them do that is if you share this podcast with them. Send it over, get them to like, subscribe, you. Do it. And, you know... Do it now. It'll give us more leverage in September.
1: Give me all in my lamp, keep me
0: burning. I agree with Nick. Give me all in
1: my lamp, I pray. I
0: agree with Gordon. Give me all
1: in my lamp, keep me burning. I agree with every single word.
0: You must have a consensus.